Welcome to Curito Connects. I'm your host, Jen, and I've been conversing with friends around the world about life challenges and impactful moments. Conversations on this platform look at answering the questions, how we overcome challenges and how our experiences shape who we are and the work we do today. I hope this work can inspire you on your own personal and individual journey. Let's dive right in. Hello, my guest today is Johnson Chong, the best-selling and award-winning author, Sage Sapien from Karma to Dharma, TEDx speaker, yoga meditation teacher, and shaman based in Sydney, Australia. Hi, Johnson. Hi, Jen. How are you doing? I am good. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I have a little bit of a head cold, but other than that, I'm good. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, hopefully after we have this conversation, your head cold will slowly... Simmer out. Um, thanks for coming on to Curito Connects today to chat about our soul contract. And so we'll go into that more for those who are wondering what is a soul contract. Um, and this is a topic that originated from Johnson's recent TEDx talk on toxic family relationships, which I'll put the link below for those who have not listened to it. I highly encourage you to have a listen. Um, and before we begin, just a small fun fact, because I usually do this for uh, my guest and how I meet them. I only met Johnson once at a class he was teaching at in Sydney, uh, and I kind of wish I lived in Sydney so I could take you basically take your class on a daily basis, Johnson. <laughs> and thanks to social media, my little stalking work uh, worked out because I, I reached out to Johnson on Instagram and invited him on today. And you were so generous to be very open to my invitation. So thank you very much. Uh, so without further ado, Johnson, I'm going to have you take over the microphone and start by, I'm going to start off by talking about shamanism because this is something that's dear to you and what you work on. And uh, for those of us who don't or are unfamiliar with this term, so shamans and shamanism and this ancient practice, I think this is a great opportunity to learn um, from what Johnson has to say. Sure. Well, first, thanks, Jen, for inviting me on your show to talk about soul contracts and shamanism, which is for sure a very big field of where you can play in essentially in the spiritual world and soul contracts well let's go back to that first since since you brought it up and our relationship with our soul we all know what a soul is on an energetic symbolic level right and we kind of know what a contract is but for those who don't remember what a contract is i'm just going to lay out some of the basic steps of a contract and then you'll start to really understand how this is applicable on an energetic level And this is something I talk about in my TEDx talk about family contracts, but this also applies on a larger level for soul contracts. So the five steps of a contract, the first step is an offer, right? Think about a rental agreement. You are offering the landlord this amount of money in counter to what was put on the ad, right? There's the offer. And then they decide yes or no. And that's the second step, which is the acceptance of the offer. And then everyone agrees and you're like, oh yeah, I get to move into my new apartment, right? Then the third step is a consideration. Um, The consideration is some sort of exchange. In this case, it's money if you're using the rental agreement as an example. Is this a reciprocal exchange for the value of this property? And am I agreeing to pay for it? Then there's mutuality. Both parties have to say yes or no, right? And then the capacity is... This is the last step. The capacity means are you of sound mind? 
are you a legal adult? So we all know this is part of a written contract or an unspoken contract. Now, soul contracts work in a very similar way. It's just happening on the energetic level because you have to remember that everything that exists in the material world is a reflection of the energetic world. And so the only reason we have written contracts is because that is a 3D manifestation of what occurs in the energetic world, <laughs> right? So if we just use this whole analogy of the apartment and the landlord and the tenants, right? You can think of your soul as the tenant, right? Looking <laughs> for an apartment to live in, like the next body, the next lifetime, the next set of experiences it's going to go get, right? In the, in the year 2020. Oh, I want to be born in the year 2020. So your soul, the landlord being God, source, spirit, or whoever, right? Your soul uh, is the tenant and goes, hey, I want to be born in the year 2020 or whatever, 2025, however the year you want to be. And I want to have this body and I want to have these sets of experiences. I want my mother to be an opera singer or whatever it is. And I want my, I, I want to live a life that is very comfortable and very successful. And I want everything to work out, blah, 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 in, in such a way, right? That There's the tenant like saying this thing. Then of course, spirit goes, um, I'm going to have a counter proposal because in the last incarnation, the last apartment you lived in, right? The last life, you did clean the walls, right? You still owe for the dry cleaning bill, you know, for the curtains. And you can use that as an analogy for you didn't learn those lessons. You, you betrayed your best friend and you didn't apologize and it was not done in integrity. So that's the dry cleaning bill, right? <laughs> okay. You, you poisoned your father in 1782, right? Or whatever it was. I'm just being very funny about it, just so that people can start to understand that contracts exist outside of linear time and space, right? So here you are making all these demands, and then spirit goes, but you haven't learned these lessons. So we're going to negotiate here. You're actually going to be born in the year 1962 in a very homophobic environment, and we're going to give you uh, a lifetime where you're marginalized as a gay person and you're going to come up against all of these obstacles and yeah okay maybe we'll give you some joy yeah you wanted um, some success and joy how about seamstressing you know that's going to be your thing and and that's going to be your your joy but also your challenge because you're growing up in this very marginalized time right so <laughs> so then it's it's like the universe has this what the ancient yogis called the Leela is Leela in Sanskrit is the cosmic play. And this is kind of the play between the landlord and the tenant. Mm. And then the apartment is this body in this time period that we call life. Mm. And so we have these contracts that we create. And then that's one contract. We have another contract that's created with the other souls that we live with, like our mom and our dad. And so my, my parents, for example, in this life, they're very doting on me, though I had a very tough childhood with them. They seem to almost vicariously live their life through me. It was almost like they were trying to hand life to me in a silver platter. They, they didn't want me to suffer the way that they suffered and the violence that they experienced. 
And so in a past life experience that I had from the parents, they I'm trying to figure out how to share this without getting too personal, but uh, I write about this also in my book. So I guess I can share that part. They they were servants in one of my lifetimes. They they and so in this life, they almost behave a little bit like a servant without a lot of their own personal passions and and even their own friends. They're they're quite hermetic people. They kind of keep to themselves. They really just want all their children to have like really great lives, kind of in the way that they want it, of course, not exactly how we want it. They but they have a very servant-like mentality and way in which they carry themselves. So that's one soul contract that they've had with me where they would wait hand on foot throughout the lifetimes. And so if we use that as an example, if they are in the process of awakening and this is supposed to be the lifetime where they awaken to a higher way of being, then they will uncover that contract and then decide, oh, wait, do I want to renegotiate that contract? That's a spiritual process of renegotiating soul contracts. Mm. Do I want to go through this life waiting hand on foot with my children? Or do I want to go and live my own life and become my own expression of divine uniqueness in this present incarnation? And my parents have not done that in this lifetime because, you know, they've gone through their struggles that the landlord tenant thing, you know, we're going back to that analogy. They, they, the, the communism and the violence and and being refugees and not speaking English in a you know foreign country and having to work when they really wanted to study and try and fit in like all of these things played against them so they may not get it this time around but if they come back again they might get it then and if not then then maybe again and so we're moving between the different apartments that are our bodies and our lives time and time again to learn lessons. And it's almost like we want to leave the apartments that we're renting super clean when we leave, right? And the yogis call this the art of dying. How do we leave consciously from this body, this lifetime? And so a soul contracts like that. The shamanic world is very much about our contract with all things, animate and inanimate, be them rocks or trees, if you believe rocks have spirits or not. In the shamanic world, everything has a spirit, or you can call it energy, or a blueprint that gives it life, or an order or a place in the universe. And so our relationship, the Caro people in the high Andes of Peru call it Aini, A-Y-N-I. Aini means a reciprocal relationship with all beings on all dimensions in all the worlds. And so it really is about how much we give and take. And so the very essence of shamanism is like that. You can see it on a microcosmic level when you're looking at your human relationships. But imagine that same relationship you have with your best friend with a tree, with how you treat the environment. Do you just drop things and litter, even though it's unintentional? Some people do that, but oh, I didn't mean that. But the I didn't mean that is still creating, you know, it, it's creating an effect, right? And so shamanism really is the practice of being totally aware and connected to all the dimensions of reality. And then, of course, there are many different paths that one walks when they're on the shamanic path. 
And you know, the word shaman actually it comes from a Tongas root, and that's from the Siberian region of of those people. And and if you trace it even further, linguists have tracked it to relating to the Sanskrit word shramana, and that meant one who was looking to attain a higher realization of themselves, of the soul. And this path of shaman, which is a more recent term that we come to in our modern vernacular, is very much associated with plant medicines in the jungle and with, let's say, African tribes and the indigenous Americans. However, we have to remember that the, the shamans were everywhere. The yogis were shamans. Right, the the native peoples of Tibet and of Siberia, they they had very shamanic practices, and all that really meant was that their relationship with nature was pure. That any time they took something from nature, be it an animal for food, or information from the universe and from spirit of where to move their nomadic tribe next to find home, there was an offering that was given as a show of gratitude, and so this reciprocal exchange of energy was always honored. And so a lot of the indigenous cultures were shamanic. And they practiced customs according to whatever was you know in their local area, right? And so that's kind of shamanism as as a whole. But most people nowadays when you hear it in the spiritual wellness community, they think about just getting high and taking a bunch of hallucinogenics, right? Which is not yeah that that's one aspect <laughs> it serves a function um, but this is this is where I'm coming from when I say shamanism I feel like everyone should take out a notebook <laughs> and reflect a little bit on the definition of their soul contract <laughs> definitely wanted to bring us back to how did you begin your spiritual journey well my spiritual journey came as a bit of a tug of war it was a tug of war with myself, first and foremost. I went to theater school, actually, as against my parents' wishes, of course, as a, a gay Chinese-American boy, right? You have certain expectations that are expected of you uh, to fulfill certain male duties and, and whatnot. And so I went against that. I went off to theater school. And it was there that I discovered yoga because it was part of our curriculum. I also discovered Alexander Technique and Feldenkrais Method, which are somatic movement modalities that help the mind and the body find synergy. And it was through these practices that I started to understand that there was something going on beyond the psyche and beyond the body. Because oftentimes in these dynamic movement classes, they called it when I was studying. And mind you, if those who are not familiar, when you go to a conservatory where you're studying to become a performer, like a very rigorous one, you're kind of in that all day. You don't really do classes like history or math. You know, you start off with movement classes, dance, script analysis. You're learning voice. You're learning about authentic stage presence. So you're constantly in yourself, exploring yourself right? Yoga, you're doing everything to study human behavior. And so because I was thrown into that, being this wounded 19-year-old with a lot of issues, that started to stir something within me. 
I started having these very big energetic experiences in these classes where I would shake, where I would cry. And then I would start laughing all of a sudden from one to the other very abruptly, almost as if my body lost control. And I started to get very curious, a little bit afraid at first. I was a bit afraid because I was like, what is happening to me? Why am I breaking down so much? And then all of a sudden, so blissful and joyful, and then everything in between. And what was happening, I didn't understand it till years later, was that the kundalini, which is that serpent energy within me, was starting to become awake. And that's what the yogis talk about. And so I started to move away from the yoga that was practiced at my conservatory. And I started to go into the yoga studios just to see what the yoga was like there. And that's when I started to understand more about the spiritual philosophy of yoga because they, at the studios that I went to outside of college, they started to infuse that in. And it got me very curious because the yoga that they were teaching us in acting school was really more about the mind-body connection to take care of yourself as an actor. But now I was getting introduced to the whole spiritual component and all of the lessons and the ancient texts and the whole concept of meditation. And that really became my rocket ship into the whole realm of spirituality. So it happened, it actually happened pretty quickly over the span of three years, three, four years while I was in, in school. And then, and then from there, I started exploring other things because it, it just one door led to the other, right? So that's kind of how my, the, the conscious part of my spiritual journey began. But of course, all spiritual journeys start because of a severe wounding, right? And I think most people gravitate towards spiritual philosophies as frameworks to understand themselves and the world around them because something happened to them when they were younger. I was just, when you were saying all that, it really resonated with me because, and I felt like you just answered something that I've been wondering since I've been recording these podcasts with all these guests from around the world, a very common theme, which you pointed out, um, what, which I was noticing was a lot of the uh, individuals who are in the wellness space that I've chatted with, um, they actually, a lot of them come from acting, dancing backgrounds. And so what you mentioned earlier, um, it threaded it all together for me, actually. It made a lot of sense in terms of what you pointed out. You, you know, when you said in the classroom, we're just working with ourselves. But at the same time, through all that, right, you, then you unravel the serpent energy. So thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's an incubator for self-discovery. And I think when you're learning to become a performer, be it an actor, a dancer, a painter even, you don't realize that you're having to dive so deeply within yourself because as a young 18, 19-year-old budding actor, I just thought, I'm just here to learn the skills and the techniques to make me a better performer without fully understanding what that meant. That in order to become a more authentic performer, it meant I had to own all of the darkest parts of myself and the lightest parts of myself and every color in between. Because in order to be present and to read well on stage and to build a relationship with the audience, you have to play a full human, which means you cannot run from the emotions that are bottled within. You, you're kind of forced to deal with your childhood stuff. 
And that's exactly what happened. And so whether you mean to or not, as a, if you go to a performance conservatory, over time, you do end up moving down a spiritual path of self-development. And some just end up going to teach. A lot of my teachers, my, my movement teachers in conservatory, were ex-dancers or ex-actors that went more into the realm of the energetics. Yeah. And it makes sense. It's a natural progression. Yeah. That's very, very interesting. Uh, I wanted to talk again about the spiritual path in terms of, so that was your journey. And, you know, when we talk about spiritual journeys these days, you know, everyone has a different starting point, you know, and, and, and I think the most common one is like, oh, I started with yoga. And then my yoga teacher introduced me to, you know, the yogic philosophy and ways, and then they progressed from that. Right. And then, like you said earlier, from yoga, it might turn into meditation, from meditation, it might turn into, um, you know, sound frequency, healing, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone's journey is a little bit different. I want to ask in your experience in, in this field, does one have to take that quote unquote spiritual path, right? For the awakening, uh, because I feel like this is oftentimes a, maybe a little bit of a debate, you know, when, when people are struggling and, you know, it almost feels like oftentimes it's like, a, like you said earlier, like a trauma or a trigger point that then people kind of shift to these self-help books and the spiritual path and this and that. And because with capitalism and consumerism and a lot of this marketing, you know, world we live in, which again, threads back to what we talked about earlier in the conversation, uh, shamanic practices. And now we're headed into, you know, doing ayahuasca. And that's what we think of in, you know, terms of shamanism, the psychedelics world, right? So could you elaborate a little bit more on that particular point? Does one need to engage in a spiritual practice in order mm. to find oneself? Well, it depends on how you want to find yourself. Do you want to find yourself fully, wholly, or do you want to find yourself from more of an informational kind of way? Like there's book smart mm. and street smart. You know, we hear, hear these phrases, right? People can read as many self-help books as they'd like, but that's informational. It's not experiential. The experiential leads to transformational. So... I'm sure people can relate. There are people in your life that know a lot of information and they can regurgitate a bunch of facts. However, you don't see themselves and their lives reflecting what they know. And so knowledge is not necessarily transformational. Experiential wisdom can only happen through a, a practice. And what that practice is, it depends on the person. They have to find that practice. If you look across all traditions, there's always something physical with the breath that's attached mm. to the journey. You look at the yogis, they have the yoga postures and then the eight path, the eightfold path to attaining enlightenment. It starts first with the moral concepts of the do's and the don'ts, right? Your yamas and niyamas. Then you go into the asana practice, which is the yoga postures, followed by the pranayama, which is all about how you change your energy system through the use of the breath and the different ways of using the breath. 
and then so on and so forth until you get to the last stage, which is this absorption with all of oneness, which is the eighth, the eighth limb. And, and there's a path that gets there. If you look at the different schools of Buddhism, there's also a path. Some of them focus more on service. Some of them focus more on the meditation. But there's something physical always attached to it. Even if you're meditating with a mala bead and you're moving your hand to count the bead and you're moving every incarnation, that's something physical. You look at the monasteries and the, the Gnostic traditions. They're doing a lot of physical manual labor in the monasteries because the energizing the body needs to be energized the body is the vehicle for us to feel any sense of freedom so if if you're not moving the body it doesn't work right the body houses the soul so if you're just reading stuff it doesn't change anything you just know a lot of stuff but you have to then apply it and that's essentially the base of the shamanic practices. It's ritual. It's ceremony. Prayer is not a, th mm -hmm. a, a thought. Prayer can, a, a thought can be part of a prayer for sure. Yeah. But it's, it's not just that. It's also the feeling. It's the energy which you put into it. It's a symbolic portrayal of honoring by bowing or, right? There's, there's a whole thing that happens with prayer it's a moving breathing yeah. act it it's not just this mm -hmm. intellectual thing so for anyone who is on any sort of process of self-development it just depends on how badly they want it mm. i mean not everyone has right. to go on that journey you can for sure just live your life and just live your <laughs> life right <laughs> and i'm sure the people listening to your podcast are you know wanting something a little bit more meaningful. So there's many ways to, yeah. to live this life. So then did you ever end up pursuing acting as a career? And while you were continuously soul-searching, self-development, whatever words we want to use to describe how you journeyed through yoga and all these different modalities, how did you eventually find your niche or not your niche, maybe your calling or you know, what really, really resonated with you in terms of your own trauma healing in the process. And, you know, you know, in, I was, I don't know if this is the correct word, but, you know, finding a quote unquote career, you know, your purpose, your purpose in this lifetime. Uh, if you can share with us a little bit about how that came about for you. Sure. I realized at a certain point even though I had finished my four years in conservatory and I got a bachelor's in fine arts and acting in theater and film. Right. And, and that was my like, wow. Oh my goodness. I have this degree that says I can, it's like permission. Essentially. It's like, I have permission to be a fool on stage or, you know, to play some tragic character. Then I realized when I was in meditation class that that feeling of bliss that I was looking for that I found in meditation was actually what I was looking for on mm. stage. Mm. And when I realized that I could have it more often in real life through a meditative practice and then through energetic practices and through breath work and all of this, what started to shift within me, in me was I realized that me identifying 
just as an actor was limiting because also at the time when I, you know, graduated from theater conservatory in the 2000s, Netflix was not as culturally diverse. There wasn't a lot of, you know, as an Asian American, I was constantly being sent out for, you know, the IT guy or some background player. And it wasn't satisfying. And I'm like, how many of these these types of roles, these stereotypical roles do I have to go out for? Um, <laughs> and I just thought, okay, this is, this is not an integrity with me anymore. I mean, had I been born 10 years later, I think it would have been a different thing because it's so much more culturally diverse now. But at that point in time, it, it, was, it was really hard facing all of this rejection and then also being pigeonholed into these things. I got, you know, you're too tall enough. You know, you're uh, to be Asian because on TV, Asians have to be this height or, or, or whatever it was, right? So there was a lot of this that played with my head. And then I started to, to evaluate it. Oh my goodness, what am I doing? What am I putting myself through? Because the, you know, though it was very enjoyable to tell stories on stage, the lifestyle of an actor was really ungrounding for me. And so part of it was that, that, that kind of challenged my personal well-being, and then having these very spiritual, mystical experiences outside of that made me really question, what am I doing this for? And then slowly I realized, oh, wait a minute, I'm just trying to be an actor to express some wounded aspect of myself as a child that I never got to express. But now that I'm doing all the spiritual work, I don't feel the need to prove anything. So me being an actor was just me trying to prove myself that I'm valuable and of value to the world. And that's not a reason you should be an actor. <laughs> you, <laughs> you should be an actor because of the love for the storytelling. But I was trying to be an actor because I was trying to heal myself. But then I found mm. a better way. I just didn't know how to say that or I didn't even know that was happening while I was in yeah. that acting journey. But everything happens for a reason. And the universe put acting school, you know, at my doorstep so that it could transition me to this other place that I'm at now. And so that's kind of what happened. It happened. It was yeah, a bit of a tug of war. I, I can I can only imagine back then, like, what do, what do I do? The, the constant conversation that many of us have, you know, at different stages, right? It's like, I feel very strongly about one thing, but like the practicality of society maybe expects me to do this thing. And then you have your other, other element, you know, there's so many facets of all that. Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, the ego is so strong. You know, the ego's going like a thousand miles an hour saying, you're a gay Asian male. You have to prove everyone they're wrong. You have to make it. And that pressure from the ego is crazy. Why do I have to live up to that pressure? It's insane. The fact that my parents did not support my acting school decision, that was also a thing that I had on my shoulder. So I had all these chips on my shoulder, but you know, you're going through a spiritual process and you're having these mystical, emotional, cathartic experiences that, you know, got me really into my heart. And then I go, why am I doing this to myself? I don't need this. And so I had this very big death of the ego experience when I was in India and I went into the river. I was doing a certain spiritual assignment that was actually ceremony based, very shamanic practice given to me by a very powerful medicine woman. And she told me to go into the river to do a certain incantation and to speak to the deities of the river. 
And of course, I come from a very analytical, you can tell from the way I speak, I'm, I'm, I'm quite logical, but yet I have this very mystical side to me as well. But at that point in time, I was more logical, right? So I thought, oh, really, there's going to be what's the lady of the lake's going to come out of the river? What's going on here, lady? So I did it anyway, you know, I gave her the benefit of the doubt. And I started to talk to the river. And I started to have this very crazy, emotional release that I did not expect. And I, I write, I write about this in my book, this whole death of the ego process in the river. And I go into it, a little bit more in detail, but essentially what happened was I left that river feeling so empty. I did not feel I identified anymore with Johnson as a son, Johnson as an actor, Johnson as a gay man, even Johnson as a brother, a friend. I, all those labels that we attach to who we are as people Oh, hey, that's my best friend. Or, oh, hey, that's my favorite musician. Or, you know, oh, I'm I'm the CEO of this company. All those labels, they all fell off. And I left that river feeling completely mm. empty. And in the Buddhist tradition, emptiness is part of the spiritual practice. It's about emptying the cup to uh, of all of the nonsense that the ego spills into our day-to-day living. And emptiness in, in a modern sense is a very fearful thing. People fear emptiness. But I found great peace and bliss in that emptiness. And that was part of my acceptance of moving forward towards where I am now, which is to be more of service. I could I could like feel that energy as you were explaining that process of bathing in the river and, and talking to the spirits. It's like, you know, detaching all the attachments and that emptiness of like just calmness right like like you said earlier uh i because you had mentioned this several times while we were talking about your severe wounds as a child uh which is a very core part of you today right and also just all this uh, spiritual path you've been on so could we chat a little bit about that because i think that leads us into talking about soul contracts right yeah of course (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We're all, we all have our wounds in our own unique ways. And I think it's important to share about our wounds and our pains, not necessarily in a way where we indulge about them. It's important to know that other people have been through experiences of suffering so that we can empathize and relate to them, right? And of course, these old patterns and stories, they live within me, but they're not me. And I think that's part of the spiritual journey. So I'm happy to share them and the listeners who are listening just know that it's it's not to seek pity or to you know elicit some sort of sympathy from people. It's not because I own my wounds. And so part of my wounding story is that first I was born as this young child that knew I was gay at a young age. At four, I kind of knew. At four, I was wearing my mom's dresses and put on lipstick and I was doing all the things that a, a, a little Chinese boy should not be doing. And I remember getting told no. I went through life at a young age realizing that my parents were not going to accept who I was. I was also uh, subjected to a lot of physical um, discipline as as a kid because my parents are refugees from a, a post-communist China. 
right? Communist China at that time anyway. And, and they experienced a lot of violence in their time. And unfortunately, that bled into their parenting, right? They, they came to America not speaking a lick of English and had my brother, me, my sister, and had to start working. They were blue-collar workers. We had a fish market in Brooklyn. And after school, we would have to go help out and I had to mind the till and all of this, right? So working class family, very strict Confucian values, you know, honor your mother, don't interrupt your father, do as I say, not as, you know, as I do. <laughs> do as I say, not as I do. Um, all of that. And that was difficult, especially when, you know, I, I'm very rebellious by nature. And so I used to have this scrapbook where, because I saw the other girls had scrapbooks and I thought, why shouldn't boys have scrapbooks? And I uh, started to cut out male models uh, out of the magazines, like Calvin Klein magazines. This is in the nineties. Okay. You guys. So uh, <laughs> I, this is what you did, right? We didn't have the internet, right? Um, it was just starting to be a thing. Um, and, and you had to have money to have a computer and, and, and like to have a dial up modem, right. And all these things. <laughs> so I had magazines. So I made a little scrapbook and I hit it of all these half naked male models. And I remember I was 10 or 11 and my mom found it and she, it was, it was a very bad situation for me because she took me to the school guidance counselor with a translator and went into this whole uh, interrogation process where um, she she accused the school of teaching children, uh, you know, about homosexuality and them being perverted people. And she asked if I was molested at school. It was very traumatic emotionally. And of course, that was followed by lots of physical punishment. And I remember at that time, and there were few instances that were similar to that up until that point in my life that was like, no you must hide yourself or you won't survive, right? And so I had to deny all those questions. Are you gay? No. Do you like boys? No. I had to literally force myself into a, a state of, I am not who I want to be because if I am, I will not survive this life. And that's, that's the mode I went into. It wasn't safe to express myself. And so I hid. And I made a vow with myself, talking about soul contracts. I made a vow. I remember very distinctly. I made a vow to myself. I didn't tell anybody, but I told myself, I will not come out to my parents until they die. Because if I do, I felt I would not survive. I had these visions of if I came out, I would be violently like hurt. <laughs> as the, as the, that, that's what I believed anyway, as a young self. Right? That, that was to the extent of of, of the psychological uh, imprints that my parents left on me. And of course, there was a lot of pressure to succeed. And, you know, I was put through piano lessons, piano lessons I didn't necessarily want to go through. I was constantly translating for my parents and trying to get them out of sticky situations. Uh, you know, all the things that immigrant children have to go through when their parents don't speak the language. So I had all of these extra responsibilities. Uh, growing up, and then my sexuality on top of that, right? And so, all in all, th that was my wounding, right? That, and all of that wounding, I wouldn't take away for the life of me because it's given me the resilience and strength to to 
empathize with other people like my clients or my students on retreat because I understand suffering from all the different levels of it, physical, mental, emotional, all of it. And I see what suffering does to people. And I can very quickly unravel the source of where the suffering's come coming from because of the pain and the suffering that I've been through. And so oftentimes what you're experiencing interviewing a lot of these healers, what I see is that the deeper the wound, the greater the capacity to, to alleviate suffering for the collective because you yourself have, have gone through it so that others don't necessarily have to go through that level of, of, of pain, right? And unfortunately, we learn through pain. That's how human beings tend to learn. We go, oh, we got burned. So let me not do that again. But then we do it again, right? And so this is, this is a journey. It's a process, right? No, no pain, no gain. That's also a contract. So you bring that up. No pain, no gain is, uh, is an energetic contract, right? All these phrases that we have in language, right? They create a kind of contract within ourselves. So you can have a contract, a soul contract with yourself. And you, another way to think about a contract, a soul contract, is that it's a belief system. You hear this a lot in personal development. However, it goes beyond a belief system because it's an energy that ties you into that reality, right? So it, it's, it's like, let's think of belief systems as the clothes that you wear. The soul contract is the fabric that makes up those clothes. It's the threads, right? And so when you're working shamanically, you're trying to redesign your outerwear, like if you're using the clothes as the example, as the analogy, we're trying to change the fabric of your energy body. And a lot of it's ancestral, right? So if we go to my family, my dad watched his mom die hanging off of the rafters because the communists hung her from the roof and made it look like a suicide. But clearly it was not a suicide. It was a murder that was staged as a suicide. And my, my dad found her like that. And so that kind of trauma of, of feeling so marginalized by your people, right? Because you come, just because you come from a land-owning family, a political land-owning family, you're now the scapegoat of the whole village. And that kind of pain, it travels. I understand that pain. I did not witness that kind of violence, but I experienced that pain through my, my parents' right. parenting. Right, So that's a kind of soul contract, the contract that they had, my mom, my dad had with those lives that they, they've had to lead. Your soul decides, oh, I'm going to offer these kinds of experiences. These are the challenging experiences that you will have. These are the triumphs that you will experience. I mean, and it sounds a little bit fatalistic because people go, oh my God, it's all been pre-planned. It's not that it's been pre-planned. It's that the themes have been selected. How you get through those themes is completely yeah. up to you. Right? So it's, it's a mix of both. And our spiritual journey is on unraveling the contracts that we've made to remember why we're here. You can call it mission. You can call it purpose. And until someone has discovered what that is, they will feel like they're bumbling around life 
feeling like mm-hmm. something is missing. So what do you suggest for those who are listening, you know, and th- this is something I'm sure you work on with your clients as well and people who do uh, reach out to you to work with you. Uh, when they're in that state of trying to find that mission or purpose or unravel uh, or redefine or find their soul contract, right? Uh, And and this, you know, this is something that is a, could extend to a whole other conversation, but for the time that we have today in, in a quick, short summary, uh, what kind of suggestions would you provide uh, our listeners to begin uh, that process to have that awareness. Cause you know, I think a lot of times people feel frustrated, like they're in this hamster wheel, but they have no idea how, you know, to, and to your point earlier, the whole knowledge versus taking action and, you know, practicing. Hmm. The first step I think is curiosity. You have to be curious, right? The whole thing about the informational versus the transformational. Most people start with the informational first, right? It's, it's, a, it's a teaser into yeah. the transformational. Because we've been so conditioned in society to value the mind more so than the experience of energy, right? Some people have mystical experiences at a very young age. You know, kids who talk to their imaginary friends until they are a certain age until their parents say, no, you can't do that anymore. But they're so tapped into the energetic realm and into the invisible and into spirit. And then they're told to shut up and, and don't do that anymore. That's, that's not acceptable behavior, right? This is all part of the soul contract that needs to be healed, right? And when that happens, it creates a whole chain of events within us that keep us from uh, feeling whole. And, and so you have to become curious as to why that is. That's the first step. And once you're curious, that's it. You, you go, I want to get more curious yeah. and find out more. Or you, you turn a blind eye and, and you go, oh, ignorance mm-hmm. is bliss. And that's really it. I think once curiosity gets a hold of you, 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 you just go. And you find someone that you resonate with. You find language that resonates with you. People who have maybe shared similar experiences to you. That's that's kind of what you look for in your guides, right? And your mentors, people who can you feel like could relate to you. It's all about empathy at the end of the day. So someone shows you the ropes. It's kind of like when you learn any new skill, right? If you're learning rock climbing, you want someone who's oh, you yeah. trust <laughs> as your rock climber. Right. So it's like that with anything in life, with any spiritual mentor or guide, that's kind of what you're looking for. Like, wow, does that person, do I feel that person understands my pain and where I'm coming from? Do I feel they have a good sense of how to get me to a place where I'm not suffering? And it's, it's very intuitive. You can't really tell people how to do that. You can just say, Mm -hmm. be curious. So go read your books and Google, Google, whatever you Google and then try some practices. I think I've encountered a lot of people who read a lot, but they don't follow up. And so what that tells me is that they're curious, but they're not willing. <laughs> so, but that's not for me to force on someone. So, you're, so I guess my advice for people who are curious and willing, then 
I would say give a certain time frame to the practices that you discover. For me, it's the physical. The physical work is so important to have an embodied experience that yoga, breath work, qigong, tai chi, martial arts even, all of the conscious Eastern practices and the physical are a really great tool to start because it gets you strong in the body. If you sweat, right, you're going to be changing the chemistry within your whole biological system, which is going to get you to feel and think and behave differently. If you're going to start feeling and behaving differently, you're going to start taking your life a little bit more seriously, which is why the fitness industry is so uh, popular and so profitable, right? And then from there, that's where a lot of people stop their journey. They stop it at the physical. If you are going further and you're you're starting to question what your purpose is, what the meaning of life is, if you don't have these questions and they're they're not plaguing you a little bit, keep you up at night, trouble you even a little, you're not really ready for a spiritual journey because it's just not your your focus. Yeah. And that's okay too. Yeah. Right? So for those people who are like, oh, I actually, yeah, I, I am like, I I know there's something more to this body and this life than me doing my job, then go to healing experiences. Go on retreat. Retreats are the best ways to really dive into what's important to you because travel for me is medicine. Because when I remove myself from the day in and day out of certain habits, right? Even I have habits and patterns that I find myself all of a sudden getting attached to. As soon as you remove yourself from that and you're with new people in a new land with different energy, surrounded by like healers and doing ritual and ceremony, something in you just naturally changes. And then you go, oh my goodness, what I was doing back home was not as important as what is coming to me now in my dreams because now you're sleeping better, you're eating better, you're, you're receiving clear visions. And then you go home and it's not like your life some people's lives radically change. Some people just make refined tweaks and then they live a better life. And so for me, travel is, you know, conscious travel. I'm not talking about like getting on a boozy cruise, <laughs> <laughs> right? Conscious travel. I know we don't have the video recorded, but I just wanted to point out that as you're saying all that, big smile on my face, nodding my head, completely 100% agreeing with everything you're pointing out. Um, and uh, for those who know me personally, I am, a re as they call, retreat retreat and workshop junkie because I, to your point exactly, that's why I love, I love going on these. It's sure, it's fun. I think some people, you know, again, some people look at it and they're like, why are you always going on these retreats, you know, are you just going for fun? And how you just illustrated is exactly uh, why I do it, you know, because you, I'm always learning something new about myself and about others. There's a huge level of empathy because you're with a group of individuals who are all sharing in a very held space, in a very health conscious space. Plus, there's that travel element which you get to engage with the community that you're where you're at, um, and yeah, you feel a certain way while you're there in hopes that when you go back into your hustle and bustle of your reality, that you can apply that or you can have a little bit of a shift. Um, so I, I thank you for bringing that up because I, I again agree 100. Um, we're coming short on time. 
So I'm going to just wrap up really quickly with just a few of my usual comments I ask my guests, uh, which is what keeps you grounded? Um, What resources have helped you over the years that you would highly recommend to our audience? Uh, And the last one, which I will kind of uh, freestyle. We start with that one first. Yeah, let's start the the first first one. Start giving Ground, me one grounded. question at a time. What keeps you grounding? All right. Grounded. What keeps me grounded is staying in ceremony, right? Ceremony is in relationship with the universe. And so there's certain practices that I do that I'm not going to go into detail with that are given to me to do by my teachers. And so it, ceremony involves a physical element. It involves the sacred connection with the breath and using my living experience as a moving mm-hmm. prayer, right? And and then I am able to feel connected with source, not just from an intellectual point of view, but it's a felt experience. And so there are certain practices that I do that get me there. For some people, it's meditation in the, in the Eastern sense where you sit and you be quiet and you just look at your thoughts and witness them and try to create some separation between you and your thoughts, realizing that you're more than just the thoughts that are happening through you, right? And that's one way. Yoga also for me is a very grounding practice. All practices that I do always involve the body. And there are many different practices that you know I won't get into, but it's okay. about embodiment. Yeah, and you do that every day. It's like an everyday it's an everyday thing. And even if it's not a strict yoga practice, there's still something that is done with okay. the body. Uh, the second question was, what resources has helped you along the way that you normally would recommend to others? So, you know, your clients or friends that you uh, come across. So it could be books. It could be, you know, your teachers, um, other teachings, etc. Hmm resources that are really helpful. I, hmm, there's so many resources. Again, like with books, I could recommend some books. But again, I think with books, people have to really resonate with the topic. And I, and I suppose all of my shamanic teachers, like Alberto Violdo, all of his books, are really resonant with me. I also think that because we're in such a digital age that there's so much access to YouTube and all of these uh, platforms where you can view videos and connect with people. I think oftentimes people view something that's very emotional or transformational or it speaks to them, but then it stops there, right? Because there's that digital screen that keeps you from making a deeper connection or like, oh, I really resonate with that YouTube video or, or that podcast or whatever. And then people stop. Like these podcasts are yes. a resource, for example. They're a resource to get people deeper into their own self-awareness. And so if your podcast, for example, is, is a resource. Now, where it stops being a resource is if you don't do anything about it. So I definitely know a lot of people who just listen to a bunch of podcasts and they, they – it, it, it intrigues them, but then they don't do anything with it. So the next step would be, oh, okay, you've just listened to a podcast. Go find some quiet time to either sit down and write about 
the ideas that you just listened to or go dig into them further if it sparks your interest, of course, and then go find a workshop near where you are or or, or go on a retreat or or look something up, right? Again, that goes back to the yeah. curiosity bit because I find that nowadays there's so much self-improvement and spiritual work out there, but people are just trying to consume it thinking that if they listen to 10 podcasts in one day, that something in them is going to change. No, it's not, honey. <laughs> it's not, it doesn't work that way, right? It's, it's like do one thing, do one thing and explore that one thing really well yeah. and then come back to it. Like I don't do a lot of podcasts. I don't read a lot of books because I'm constantly yeah. practicing. So that's what I, I, I'm all for the resources and the books and all these articles and whatnot. But again, one thing at a time, like do pick one thing. That's, that's like my biggest pet peeve with the world nowadays. So they're trying to like, Oh, I'm I'm trying this modality. I'm doing this modality. I'm doing 16,000 healing modalities and I'm clearing this trauma and working on this chakra. I'm like, really, are you? That same level of fragmentedness that you've come into your current anxious state with, and now you've just substituted it with a bunch of spiritual modalities. And so simplify. That's kind of just, I, I would say, for resources. Like I, I just, there's so much out there. So just find something that works yeah. and go explore it. I was, I was going to say what other, um, what two cent do you want to leave our listeners with today? But I think you just answered that question in the, the resource. In the, so yeah, simplify. in the resource. Simplify. <laughs> You know what I mean? It's like, why are you living? I, I, it's so funny. Like, especially during COVID, during the lockdown, I would run into people I wouldn't see. And they're like, oh my God, I listened to like five podcasts today. I've been so productive. I'm like, oh, did you retain any of that information? Did you go practice it? It, it was like, oh, it was so, it was so interesting. You hear people say that all the time. I listened to this podcast. It was so interesting. Did it change your life? Did you actually put those practices into practice? And some people actually do, but most people don't. They just cons- they're so used to consuming content because of yeah. what's happening with social media yeah. and YouTube. So for me, it's not about how many books you read or how many. Like I don't, I, I don't really care about that. You 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 connect with someone and you resonate with their energetic field, not because of how many books they <laughs> they've read. Right? It, it's because of how they make you feel and how you relate to them on an energetic yeah. level. And so whatever you choose to do on your personal development, spiritual journey, whatever it is, you have to be making sure that you are changing your energetic body. And the way to change your energetic body is through a consistent physical practice, making sure that you eat the right foods. And I'm not a nutritionist, but there's many people who are, right? And so you and and you have to sort out all the physical ailments first. Otherwise, you're not going to be interested in the other stuff. That's so true. <laughs> yeah. Right? Maslow's hierarchy. Yep. Your base needs mm-hmm. have to be met in order because if you go on that pyramid, on if people are not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, you know, at the bottom of the pyramid are your 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 base needs, food, water, shelter. And then you have your 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 um, safety needs, and then you go into belonging, and then you you go in towards self actualization at the top of the pyramid. And so, I'm assuming that your audience is somewhere in the middle of the pyramid, moving up. They're looking for more yeah. purpose, more meaning. Definitely. Well, 
I wish we could keep going because I think we definitely could keep going. There's so many other things to talk about, but we will wrap up here for today. Uh, and hopefully um, maybe we could bring you out to Taipei uh, to do some fun workshops or retreats out here one day. I will put all the quote unquote resources <laughs> um, in the episode uh, resources link below. And hopefully um, those who resonate will take a look and take action and um, thank you so much for sharing, Johnson. That was very insightful. Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to share. And if people want to connect and, oh, yeah, there's the TEDx talk. We didn't really talk too much about it. But, you know, if people want to check that out, it's how to deal with toxic family relationships. It's just a different way of looking at soul contracts from a more family relational level. And, you know, I run retreats and workshops and training programs and all types of things. So people can find me on Instagram and Facebook and all the social media stuff. But please don't binge it. <laughs> Take a little bit at a time and, you know, sit with it. Mar let it marinate. <laughs> marinate. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Johnson. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening to Curito Connects. For more Connects content, collaborations, and discoveries set to inspire you on your own individual journey, please head to our website at www.curito.co. Until next time, stay inspired and thank you for joining us at Curito Connects.